Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a classic big interview. This is where we dig into the vaults and choose an episode from earlier in our shows. This time, we've gone all the way back to season 2018-19 and opted for one of our and your absolute favourites. This is what I had to say about it back then. Do enjoy. We interviewed Owen Hargreaves for this big interview in a very Goldfinger situation, an august, tree-lined golf course, beautiful, Bondesque. I wanted to know who fought with each other at Bayern Munich on the training ground. I wanted to know why it was that Stefan Effenberg, remember him? Kicked Owen all the time. Owen will share with us moments of magic, moments of wisdom with Alex Ferguson, the rouse at Old Trafford, or at least at Carrington, on the training ground, when boxes were taken ultra-seriously. Owen Hargreaves on the golden generation of England, why it didn't work internationally. Frankly, this is above and beyond anything that you'd normally get from a footballer talking about his career. Don't just listen. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell strangers. I often wish that this was a, a visual medium, not just an audio medium, because we're sitting in a beautiful clubhouse, straight out the door. I, I can sniff uh, the freshly cut fairways of a golf club. We can just from time to time hear the titlist been hit a good 280 yards down the fairway. And uh, I wish people could see it because it's a bloody fine place to interview um, a double Champions League winner. And therefore I'm going to throw you a curveball which, given your North American upbringing, you'll understand the meaning of. If you're a golfer and you're a golf fan, how was the weekend for you? Did you follow any of the Ryder Cup? Did, does golf inspire you in any way whatsoever, apart from being able to hit the ball nicely as you do? When I was a young kid, we, in Canada, obviously, it was pretty cold in, in Calgary, where I grew up, so you know, we had minus 30 winters. It was very seasonal, so in the summers, when the weather was good, you, you tried to play all different sports outside, and we moved to neighborhoods as a kid when I was about eight, and because were, in Canada, all the developments are new, you know, you, they kind of go further out, and they just pop up, and um, we got a free golf membership oh. they, with, the, with the area, so, you know, my brothers and, and my dad, we used to play, and then when I went to Europe to play football, because I used to only get a few weeks off. When I used to come home, I have two older brothers and my dad. We had the perfect four ball. So that was a way for us to bond and hang out together and, and connect and you know, have a couple of beers and have a bit of competition, but a bit of fun too. So the golf, I never took serious, but it was something I loved. And it was a way for me to you know, spend four hours with your, with your dad and your brothers and, and just have a laugh. I think I saw, and I'm going to come back and talk to this, probably, particularly for England, particularly in the World Cup, 
where I looked at you and I thought, there's a completely different breed of player. I remember writing at the time, wrote quite a lot about you, thinking, this is the missing piece that will make all the talent blend. What struck me was I'd rarely seen an English player so intelligent about space and closing and what to do with the ball once he received it or showing for the ball, but particularly asphyxiating dangerous players, anticipating what was going to happen and then saying, right now, guys, I'm going to give it to you, Gerard Lampard, whatever it might be. Yeah. Now, listening to your description of basketball and the mindset it needs and the anticipation, because it's not pure athletic speed that gets you into those situations. Yeah. You have to read what the other team is going yeah. to do and the ball moves so quickly. Mentally, that was quite a, that was an SAS training in, in anticipation of, of opposing players that you had with the speed of those two games. Yeah, but when I came into Bayern Munich, it was just I don't think a youth team player had come through for four or five years. So young players didn't come through, and the team was so established. And young players and older players, it was the opposite of England, where they really helped the young kids. You know, there was a big divide between the old and the young. And uh, for me, you know, once I kind of came in, I couldn't afford to make mistakes because if you make mistakes, you stick out. Yeah. You know, so you learn quickly. You know, I got to make good decisions. I got to be in the right places at the right time. I can't stick out negatively. And uh, I remember my manager at the time, Obmar Hitzfeld, I, I just started training, and uh, I was training pretty well. And some of the older guys were getting pissed off uh, a little bit with me. Uh, and he pulled me aside once after, after a session. He said, look, oh, did I can't tell you any more than this because I'm on the old guy's side. But he said, this way it works, is if they're pissed off with you, if they don't like you. Because if they don't like you, it means you're a threat to them. And he said, the only way this way, you've got to hunt them every day on the football pitch. Off the pitch, you've got to be respectful of, of your elders and you've got to open doors and carry balls and carry goals. But on the pitch, they've got to take notice. And he said, that they're mad at you? He said, trust me, you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. And it was the best piece of coaching advice I was ever given, you know, because it made me realize as much as you have to be respectful, when I get on the football pitch, you know, you've got to go after everyone. doesn't matter who they are, as big as they are. And, uh, and you've got to trust your instincts. And once, once I started to figure that out and, you know, and, and learn when and where I could make mistakes, then, uh, then it kind of all starts to come together. It's a tremendous sense of liberation when a leader, somebody upon whom your future rests, says to you, uh, son, you're bang on there. That gives you a liberation because you've intuited what you've had. You've had to work out... How do, how do I treat, um, I don't know, Kafur or Effenberg yeah. or Sveini was after you? The big, the big dogs, Salahmidze. I, I don't yeah. know who, who you gave the biggest chasing to. Linka, maybe, on the training ground. Who you, who no, you Effenberg, he kicked off. me every day for a year. Every day he kicked me for a year. And uh, I remember one day, it was coming towards the end of the season, and we were, we, we were, on, we were we had a friendly in, in Africa somewhere. I forgot where, and was about to get on the, the plane just before and he was in front of me I said no Effa you go first and he said no I said oh and you go first he said you're going to be my successor you, you were in the right you know just off the cuff and I thought what's going on here I said this is a weird moment but you know it was almost like the young kids don't really get that now but for me they, you have to earn their respect and earn their trust you know nobody else was there and, uh, and I just think every time he used to kick me he used to pick me back up and I didn't say anything, you know. But I would try and give as good as I could get, but I would never make it personal. But the point is, sport at that level is about competition. It's mm. Whether it was my older brother I was competing with or then Effenberg, you know, you, you have to l- learn to cope with that environment. I think a lot of young kids, that's difficult. 
you know, to, to come into that environment. You come from an academy where you, everything's catered for you. You're the best player. You're Man City, or you're Liverpool, you're Man United. You, you blow away every team, 7-8-0. All of a sudden, you come into men's football, and it's all about competition. You can't afford to make mistakes, you know. You have to be competitive. And I think some of the kids coming through now, they can all play, but can you compete? That's, that's, that's one of the, the greatest attributes I think any athlete can have is, is can you compete? Because... You know, I think football players are, you only really know them when it's bad. You know, when it's bad, then you see people's true colours. And football's easy when, when you're winning and, you know, the weather's good and stuff. Am I hearing an explanation for a question I wanted to ask you about Sunday the 5th of July 1998? And for anybody who thinks Bjorn Anderson was uh, part of ABBA, he wasn't. He was your, <laughs> your coach. Yeah, he's the guy who brought me to Bayern. Yeah, Borussia Dortmund 2... Five minute one on penalties. I'm going to read it quickly because nobody's ever heard of any of them. Uh, Mario Bartolovic, Sebastian Backer, Stefan Struntz, Christian Lesman, Niles Eric Johansson, Owen Hargreaves, Michael Fisher, Thomas Rice, Patrick Merzel, Stefan Huffman, Berkant Gürktan, and the Dortmund team, which should be full of people where we go, oh yeah, I know him, isn't. And that uh, cup final. <laughs> ends with eight consecutive penalty misses and Dortmund wins. And the point that struck me when I was looking at your background was nobody from those 29 players used, I don't know quite why there were four substitutes used by Dortmund, none of them really came through to, to senior, senior successful level except you. Beckham Gugtan was probably the best youth player I've ever seen in my life. He was like the old Brazilian Ronaldo. He played in the first team at 17. But then he went into the first team, he was nutmegging everyone, the, the old guys started getting mad, they started smashing around. He went alone and it never worked out. But that was probably one of the most talented players I've ever seen in my life. So it just shows you, you can get to that point and still fail, you know, if the variables aren't right. You know, Patrick Milter, he was a number 10 for Germany, he was a super player. Sebastian Backer, everybody said he was, he was going to be the Matthäus in, in 10 years. Stefan Hoffmann, I'm the godfather to, to his daughter, he, he became player of the year in Austria. Uh, a few years so all the guys are in the same position you're, you're in a position to strike you know but you've got to take the chance and I remember as much as you know I was in around the first year I was training I remember we played Real Madrid in the, in the semi-final and I played quite a few games but not, not anything like that and I remember I think Effenberg was suspended and they weren't sure who to play and they had Sforza and they had Fink and they had all these you know kind of veteran guys and uh, Omar Hitzel picked me to play. And I remember thinking before the game, Luis Figo at the time, I think he was the most expensive player in the world. And what? I loved Luis Figo. And Ivan Helger was one of my heroes. You know, I, I loved him as well. So I remember thinking before the game, uh, and just thinking, I'm in trouble here. Luis Figo. You know what I mean? This is, this is a long way from... from your third from midfielder that you're up against was Guti. Guti, yeah. I love so it. if the other two weren't on it, it was, there was only Guti to worry about. Uh, from, you know, a young kid from Calgary. And, I, and then I remember... Uh, Figo, he tried to dribble around me early doors in the game, and I, just, I took it off him and skipped by him. And then Roberto Carlos, and I ran by him. And I remember just thinking, and I crossed it, or something happened, and I ran back. And I remember, it was like a light went off in my head. And I remember just thinking, I don't have to be scared of these guys. I know they're much better than me, but I can outwork them or I can influence them. Mm. And uh, it was one of the most powerful moments I ever had in my life because it made me realize, as good as those guys are, they only got two feet, you know? And there's one ball between us. 
who wants it more, you know? And I remember after I came in the dressing room after the game, we, we won. It was the second leg, and we got to a Champions League final where we played Valencia. And uh, I was still on, like, a reserve team contract. I, mean, I was getting a drink, and Rumenega was next to me. And he came in, and he said, um, he said, oh, uh, tomorrow we'll do a new contract. You outplayed your old one. And, you know, and it wasn't about... It wasn't about any of those things, you know, money or anything, but it, it came once you performed. And I love that about Bayern Munich because they were yeah. the first one to say, look, let's do a new one. But I remember that moment kind of was my first moment where I thought I could make it here. But I like very much that the same light that had gone on in your head on the pitch had, had happened to Karl Heinz in the stand looking at him going, that guy's coming off the, the junior contract. This guy, this guy is getting tied to us. Right now. Well, and I didn't have an agent, really, at the time. Yeah. So I wasn't in a position, like, now all these young kids, you know, that they got all these big agents and you know, all this leverage, 12. and, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. it, the game has changed dramatically, really. As a punter, I was in Milan um, that night where your performance against Figo and Real Madrid had helped the 2-1 win in the qualification for the Milan final. Penalties play a big part in your life, don't they? Strangely, yeah. I mean... I've, I've won two Champions Leagues on penalties and I've lost virtually every major tournament with England on penalties. Albeit that you scored against Portugal. But yeah, I mean, I've... I've Penalty shootout in the, in the uh, Dortmund Bayern Munich youth final that yeah. I mentioned before. Yeah, a lot of those moments were, were decided by penalties, strangely. And club level, I've had fortune, I've had success. And international, I've had none. So it's... What's your relationship with the Elf Meter? It's, it's something so different from actually football because football, the ball's always moving. It's more like golf, really, where the ball's still and you've got a lot of time to think. And if you're thinking too much, it's going to go pear shape. So, you know, it's not a f- hard physical task if you think about it, you know, from 11 metres to hit a stationary ball. It's, it's not that hard, but you've got to take into account all the pressure in the moment and the situation. And all these sports psychologists can talk about these things, but you can't recreate those variables without the situation itself. So I remember with England, you know, we had some of the best penalty takers you could ever dream of, literally. I mean, if you could draw them up, you'd take these guys. And we didn't win, you know. We, we, just, we just couldn't. I don't know why. But um, I remember being in and amongst those group of players when we, when we got knocked out in 04 and 06, especially 06. And um, it's quite a select... Even the guys that are in the squad, they're not in amongst the 8 or 10 that are taking them, Right. And so the boss picks them, and some people want one, and some people don't. And um, after the first one, you can feel it kind of developing, you know, good or bad. And I remember with England, I just remember it being eerily quiet, almost too quiet, which I understand because everyone's thinking, right? Everyone's thinking, God, you know, I want to score, you know. But the problem is, and when I was in that, and we end up not winning with England, for whatever reason. I remember when I got in that situation with Man United after my experiences with England a couple of years before in the Champions League final against Chelsea. I remember Cristiano missed. I think he missed second. And I was next. Well, it, it goes for the point where, actually, had you not scored, Asi Cole was in a position to win the match yeah. rather than John Terry. Um, so I think that you maybe went third. I went third, yeah. yeah. I think Giggsy went first. Cristiano second. I remember when he missed, I thought, oh, he's killed me there. And, um, and I'm, I remember, you know, when you get up there, you have 
so much time to think, really. And I remember going up, and Balak was there on the Chelsea team, John Serry, Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard, and we used to practice pens with England all the time. And I used to always go top left, without fail. Everybody knew Sorry, that. Sorry, just so everybody can picture it. So the goal's in front of me, my top left, yeah. Your top left. Like a free kick, basically. I whip it top left. And everybody knew that, right? So I guess as I've gone up, the Chelsea boys on the middle of the pitch are all pointing top left, right? And we had practiced it, you know, for a couple of weeks. And I didn't miss one. And uh, even the night before in the Moscow Stadium, Sir Alex told me to stop because I was just whipping them top top pin. And uh, as I've stepped up, I thought, you know, it's just checking eye, walking up. And it's it's quite a slow walk, you know, because... It's weird. You're thinking, should I jog up? No, I don't really want to jog up, but it looks so over the key. the mind. Yeah. You're not telling me this. You're listening to your mind in the, on it's the night. It's unbelievable how much you can process in a, in a 10-second walk. And you know everybody's watching you. And so as I'm walking up, I'm thinking, I'm sure those guys are telling check I'm going top in. So I'm thinking, mm, maybe I'll go bottom corner, other side, you know? Right. Just most ridiculous <laughs> logic, right? So as I've... It, no, it actually makes sense. It, it remotely makes sense. But so as I've gone up, I thought, I've looked at it, checks in the goal, he's like 6'4", isn't he? And um, it looks different. The goal feels small. So it, the goal looks different when there's a guy 6'4 in there and 30,000 people behind the goal. So as I've gone up, I thought, what am I doing changing my mind here? Good for you. What am I doing changing my mind here? He's in goal because he's, he's pretty good at his job. If he saves it, hats off to him. But he's not, you know, I'm going to do my best. If his best beats mine... Hats off. And uh, I went out and whipped it top bin. And, and it was a great pen. And it was a great lesson for me to, you know, rather, you know, trust your instinct. You can think too much. And I think the people that succeed in these moments, whether it's golf or football or whatever, are the ones, because everyone's thinking, that, but can process the information without getting stressed or yeah. without changing their mind. Yeah. And I had lots of different things I was thinking about. But actually, when I went up, I stuck with my initial thought, even though I was processing different variables. You, you were bringing in, maybe they've tipped him off, and maybe yeah. that will help him. Yeah. But you went, I know what I do well. I'm going to do and what I do well. And he guessed the right way. So but they, they had told him, and he'd gone, I'm going to go with the information. But he, had, you know, he was never going to save it. You know? It's a thrilling moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not, like I said, it's not a hard physical exercise. It's a really no. easy physical exercise. For somebody that's hit you know, probably a million balls, it's, it's not hard, but... You know, to to do it like you, you the analogy of the Ryder Cup and stuff. Those guys hit golf balls all their life, but you know, the Europeans did it better than the Americans when the push came to shove. So, coping in that environment is, I think, a, a rewarding thing for for any athlete because you've you've trained all your life for those moments. Really, I, if I ask any of the guys now I work in TV with, I said, how many games of your career do you remember? You know, seriously, you played 500, 800. And there's probably 10 that stick out for you, you know, really stick out that you remember and people identify you with. And some of those moments are the ones that a lot of people, if they see you on the street, they remember you and uh, moments that you remember. Because you, you can't remember every game, you know, you, you can't remember it's every impossible. moment. It's impossible. And fans, we obsess, we get geeky. So that's why you get asked so much about things like, fellas, I don't remember, but you'll remember this. And the word in Spanish is atrevido and it means cheeky. So I mean to be cheeky in the nicest possible sense, but given what we've just talked about, how in Milan did about, let me just count them, 50 players take a penalty and you didn't? Well, that was because of the hierarchy of the older and the young. You know, so I remember I said to Carson Yonker, it was just he and I left. 
Carson was a big, big And if boy. Carson hadn't kept hitting the woodwork in the Camp Nou two yeah. years previously, Bayern Munich would have wrapped up yeah. that 4-0 win. Exactly. So I was a young kid. It was my first season. So it was more... I didn't think it was my place to take a... Even though I always took penalties. I, are you telling me you wanted one? I would have taken one, 100%. So I said, Carson, it's you and me left. And he said, he said I'm not <laughs> And then, and then, at least uh, he was on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Pellegrini, he missed. So I was next up, I, I think. So you were next up because you stand watching some of the penalties with your arm around Thomas Linker, who scores effectively what proves to be the winning penalty. So maybe you just transferred by osmosis a little bit of that Hargreaves elf meter technique in, in standing close to Thomas. Well, you know what? Going back to that experience with England, you know, where it was really quiet, you know, I really think that's where a team can help. And when we were with United and Cristiano missed the second one, mm-hmm. I was third. And then I came back to the huddle and, you know, we're, we're in a decent position. You can see a lot of people within themselves thinking. And in that moment, after what happened with England, I realized, you know, I got to get these guys to stop thinking, you know. So whether it was, you know, Rio or Nani or Anderson, any of them, I said, you're going to score, man. You're going to yeah. score. I know yeah. you can. You're going to smash your top in. Don't change your mind. Pick your spot, you know. And then people, you can see them rather than thinking, thinking on their own, yeah. you know, you engage them and you mm. can make eye contact and you give them a bit of confidence. Because I think in those moments, maybe some people want to be on their own to think, but actually it's important to, to be engaged so you can't overthink and uh, I remember I spoke to Rio about it years later. This like feeling started to develop, you know, where everybody was like together, you know. And strangely, John Terry, I don't know, he was the only player that slipped that night, you know. Of, of I know the rain was coming down and and everything, but it was like it just went in our favor. And football is sometimes like that, you know, it goes against you, and then for whatever reason, in that moment, he slipped, and we win. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We have sponsors who are Bet365 and they've sent us in a question, which is for you. And it's one that bridges England, Bayern Munich, Calgary if you want. Was it the Foothills? Foothills, yeah. Calgary, Foothills, Manchester United. So the guys at Bet365 want to know, Owen, who is the best footballer in your personal assessment that you ever played with or against? I mean, it's difficult because it's like, how do you compare Paul Scholes and Cristiano Ronaldo? 
you know, personal one, preference. You know, one is six two and quick and can can go both ways and, and you know and headers and all that. And Scalzi is just this genius of of, of of a brain that is two steps ahead of everyone else that really physically with the attributes he had probably shouldn't be able to dominate football games like he did. Cristiano was was abnormal because you know physically he had so many dominant traits where he was big and strong and quick could both both ways free kicks corners everything Scalzi was just a player's player you know he was just sometimes I used to laugh it was so easy for him you know because he was just, he was just so gifted but I remember playing against Zidane I, I always loved Zidane and um, and then playing playing against him at Real Madrid with Bayern and stuff um, you know, I love playing against them, and you'd never tell your heroes that they're your heroes. You know, so you, in the end, you've got to compete against them. But I, what struck me about it, he was so quiet when you, you know, when you went around him, you, you could just hear him breathe. That was it. You know, he didn't really talk much, but he was just such a genius. So there's different levels of, of genius. Scalzi and Zidane were kind of mentally, you know, ahead, and, and Cristiano. You see, those guys are like the old Ronaldo. You know, when you're that quick and that powerful and that explosive, it's virtually impossible to stop. Whereas those guys were, were sharp with their with their brain. Okay, the debate I think happened on on the show that you guys have made famous on BT, where I think it was Jake uh, teased out of Frank Rio and Stephen Gerrard. Yeah, a really articulate addressing of something that everybody had uh, believed for a long time. And the, the first time I ever spoke to a, a current England player about an England regime was Gary Neville talking about Terry Venables in 96 and how Venables and his assistant actively went and knocked on rooms and brought people out so that there was a unity so that any club divisions or any lonely guys were, were kind of brought into the centre of the church so that I think it was maybe Bisham Abbey that were staying in what became a really exciting tournament for England and a tournament which captured people's imagination that there was a, a unity. But what people call the golden generation, which really happened thereafter, where you played with Paul Scholes and, and Gerard and Lampard and Rio at the back, and you could name, including Wayne Rooney, really elite talents of, of all time in England. And yet, what your colleagues on television have admitted was that there was division everywhere, that there were cliques that everybody sat in club tables... One, you were kind of a... Well, you were I was, I was an outsider mm. of the outsiders. I mean, I'm an outsider in my own family, to be fair. My mom's what? Welsh. Well, it is. My mom's Welsh, born in Wales. My dad's born in England. Both my brothers, one's born in England, one's born in Wales. I'm the only person in the history of my family not to be born in England or Wales. So then growing up in Canada, then moving to Germany, nobody could figure out where I was from. So I was born in Canada in a, in a British home then became a man probably in Germany and really I didn't fit in anywhere as such because I wasn't connected to Liverpool or Man United or so for me I didn't care where the guys were from I treated everybody the same and mm-hmm. I can understand there's a bit of pressure in terms of uh, you know the Liverpool boys you sit together United boys sat together Chelsea boys sat together and then there was a few spread out where they didn't have big camps, and I thought everybody got along pretty well. Um, I, I'd have to say, I don't think the problem is that we didn't get along. I think the problem was that back then we played 4-4-2, and 
you know, it's a nice idea to think you can play all these great players and put them all in a team together. The problem we had was, you know, Frank and Stevie and Scalzi, the best, some of the best players of their generation. When we had the ball, only one of them could really have it. And everybody was used to being, you know, leading the orchestra at their football club. So I think for us, when we played the smaller team, we blitzed them. And the standard in training was, honestly, it was ridiculous. I used to think we were going to blow everyone away every game. But then when we, when we get into a game, say we play a Croatia, where you still think we're better than them, we'll win. They could keep the ball. And then all of a sudden we had all these guys who were the best in their position and we couldn't get the ball back. So rather than having Frank and Stevie and Scolzi, you know, they were kind of dictating to us. And actually we probably needed a bit more just the blend right. We had the best players, but we were never a great team. And not so much the players as such. Players are responsible, but the manager as well. Mm-hmm. You've got to get the blend right. You know, you, I guess that's why that guy is at the front of the orchestra leading it. You know, he's a conductor. Because you need somebody to reference. And for us, we had so many reference points, whether it was Scolzi or, or David Beckham or Jared or Michael Owen or Rooney or Lampard. You know, and for us, when we played teams that were, you know, that were good in possession as well, Maybe we didn't have a blend right. We had two up, Michael Owen and uh, Emil Heskey. When we probably could have done with just one and then, and then three in midfield and, and two wingers. So I think if we had that group of players now in the era where nobody ever plays two centre forwards, we probably would have been just fine because Frank and Stevie or Scorsese could have played together, mm-hmm. one in behind, two wingers, and we, we, you know, we probably would have been OK. Having ultimately worked for the ultra-competitor in Alex Ferguson, did he teach you things? Well, I think the only reason I was going to leave Bayern Munich was to play for Sir Alex ah. and play for Man United. I mean, other teams came in for me, but Bayern Munich was a massive club. I don't think people realise how big a club Bayern Munich is. You know, when with England, we were at the World Cup in 2006, and all the lads couldn't get over how beautiful Germany was. And uh, they said, you know, now I understand why you play over here. And we, I used to play those guys in the Champions League all the time, the Chelsea boys and the Liverpool and Arsenal. We, we beat them, you know, pretty much always. So... I think everybody knew, but the broader perception was, why is this, why is this guy playing, playing in Germany? Stupid old Bayern Munich. But Bayern was a big club, you know, it was, and um, it was hard to leave there because I was there for 10 years and, and, you know, I really felt close to the club, but I wanted a new challenge and I wanted to play for Sir Alex and Sir Alex was, was somebody that, you know, I thought could take me to the next level and help me improve because I just felt like I had potential that I hadn't really uh, tapped yet. You, you didn't want a comfort zone because... No, I wanted like, the opposite of my comfort exactly. zone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, what you didn't mention there is if had you stayed at Bayern Munich, frankly, you'd have won probably a couple of trophies every season for the remainder of your career. Yeah, I got, I got bored of that. You know, with the utmost respect, you know, I'd won the league four times, the cup three times, the Champions League, and I was 26. You know, I wasn't German, you know. I wasn't... I, wasn't, I d- didn't identify as much as Munich was my... Mm-hmm. City. I wasn't German, you know. I wasn't one of the. I wasn't Schweinsteiger or Lamb or, or one of those guys. So, I wanted a fresh challenge. You know, we were just going through a phase where, we were transitioning from the old to the younger generation, and we um, that summer when I left, Ribéry came in, then Robin came in, and then and then they kind of started again. And I just wanted a fresh start, and I wanted to leave my comfort zone because I felt too safe, you know. And mm-hmm. I think the only way to get better in life is if you leave your comfort zone. So. Going there and having the opportunity to play under Sir Alex at, at Old Trafford uh, with Giggsy and Scalzi, you know, I felt like I was dreaming. When we sat down with Michael, he, he talked about, like, I want to be in that box. I want to be in the top box. 
and Fletch the same. Yeah. The boxes for anybody who hasn't listened before. Where have you been? <laughs> He's at, at the cliff or Carrington in your case, um, where it's the passengers. The Spanish call it the rondo. Yeah. They stand in a circle, two, three in the middle. It's chase ball yeah. and it's brilliant to watch yeah. when it's done correctly. Yeah. The boxes. Tell me your experience of the boxes. Love, love the boxes. I mean, look, we used to have managers that we'd always start training with a box. That yeah. was the first. It wasn't yeah. even a warm up. It was just boxes. And um, it was the best part of the session, best part of the day. And uh, then some people took the boxes away and they were not well liked by, by the lads. Name them. Well, no, I don't know why. We went through a phase where we didn't do boxes. And it just, it's like the guys just want to play with the ball. Mm-hmm. And um, the boxes literally was, we were talking about yesterday with Scalzi in, 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 in Rio, you know, like some players are brilliant in the boxes and other players. Um, I remember Scalzi said yesterday, Van Persie was the only player who couldn't read in the box. The only player, because you can read people, you know, because you can, you know where they're going to pass. Some people are more obvious Habits, than body shape. Yeah, whereas some people are just, you know, like, I guess I, I never played with Robin, but he says Scalzi, which is a big statement, Scalzi. He said the only player I couldn't read in the box. And um, they were brilliant, you know, whether to, when you can nutmeg people or, or just get the tempo. And if you've got 20 or 25 passes, then, you know. See, I think the universe is in there. Again, this is not visual medium. So talking about the boxes, Owen's face is split into this huge grin and he's almost back there already and it's made me grin too, you can hear it in my voice. But like, um, the technical guys are going like, this is a perfect way to bring my technique from superb to blindingly superb. The competitive guys like you are like, who can I not make? How long can I stay outside? We had Quinton Fortune here recently and he taught us about the, the rough ride Ronaldo was given originally about like always putting him in the middle and his tricks were for show not to yeah keep exactly him, yeah it's true yeah not to keep him yeah. from going in the middle and as soon as he was in the middle he hated it and would learn to use the ball differently that the universe of personality psychology in those boxes uh, and and also the superiority of not being the guy in the middle for as long as possible. Well, definitely. And you also had some of the older guys, like if you came new to the team, you'd have to say like Giggsy, he would fizz one into you, you know, to test your touch or, you know, and you got to fizz it back, you know, because in those moments, it's not so much, the guys are all testing you really, you know, and you have to be able to cope without, you know, a bit poker face, you know, so rather than, you know, and you got to be cheeky. You got to take the piss a little bit. You know, you got to show a bit of flair, but you also got to be serious. You know, so when I used to go train with the young kids, sometimes you know, when I was coming back from injury, you know, I remember one of the first days that Pogba was in that group, and uh, they did the box, and I said, I stopped it after a minute. I said, lads, this is rubbish. This is not football. Pass the ball properly. I said, if you want to do a bit of skill, do a bit of skill. That's fine, but it's got to work. But I said, pass the ball properly. Start properly and make these boys in the middle run. And that's what we got from, with, with Man United, with the boys. Yeah, there was a bit of flair, and there was a bit of, but the ball was popping, the ball was moving. And the point is to make those guys in the middle run. I remember at Bayern, if you were in the middle, if you were in too long, the lads used to, they used to go mental, they used to smash the life out of each other. People got injured for fun, because people's pride was, was hurt, you know, for being in too long. Whereas at United... I think I just tried to smash a couple of people and Scalzi pulled me aside one day and said, oh, we don't need to do that here. It's, it's different than Bayern. I said, okay, Scalzi, okay. <laughs> so Bayern, and who are we talking about? Because I'd imagine Effenberg probably just refused to... Jens Jeremy. Oh, yeah, he would, he would smash He's them. a monster. If somebody, if somebody, if you make Jens... Oh I'd God. imagine... Sammy, Sammy Cooper Sa- would smash you. It. It'd smash you. Salihamidzic would Salihamidzic would wouldn't be in the middle often, I wouldn't have thought. Or Schwarzer, Scholl. 
No, look, if, yeah, it depends. If you, if you, a lot of it's just concentration because all the guys really have the ability not to be in there if they don't want to. But um, Effenberg, yeah, I mean, he would, he would always, even if he played a bad boy, he'd send a young kid in. You know what I mean? Come on, get in, get in there. You know, you'd have to, you'd have to, you have to swallow it. But all the guys interpreted the box different. But in Munich, for sure, I mean, literally, I mean, guys were, would there be fights? You know, with arguing over balls or people that poor challenge. I mean, dreadful challenge. Carsten, he used to smash the life out of people. In now, the box. I don't want to be rude, but like, although he was very effective in his way. I would judge he wasn't on the same technical level as the people you've been talking about. That's my opinion. No, no, and that's probably I'm not why I'm my dad, but that's probably why I used to smash people. And he, he did. The boxers at United were great because they were quite technical and fun. The ones at uh, Bayern, you really had to be on your toes and jump every time because people were coming and smash. <laughs> the dive it. in is a dive yeah, in. Oh, I'm, I'm not. I'm talking proper challenges. It's funny how you talk about when you hear about that. Um, a lot of players at elite clubs. You must recognise this thing. Training was harder than playing. Training was harder than the matches. You worked at ultra intensity in training so that the weekend was fun. Recognise? Yeah, especially at Bayern. We used to argue and fight and have rows, you know, in the training games. I remember even the Champions League final with, um, when we played Chelsea, and I was talking about it with Rio. We did a training game the night before, so you, you train in the stadium. Yeah. And uh, I remember Young Welbeck was in the opposition's team, so Rio was in my team. We must have played nine aside or whatever. And um, Young Welbeck was, was doing all right. So I, I said to Rio, any chance, Rio? He's 19. You know what I mean? He's had a pop of me. And, and in the end, I think we lost a training game, right? And so Alex, he came over at the end. And we weren't fighting, but we argued and we rowed because we wanted to win the training game and, and that was the point you know forget what happened the next day we were able to win that training game the night before meant as much to us as the one the next day that, that everybody was watching nobody was watching that one so I came come on like, calm down save it for tomorrow you know but that that's the beautiful thing at, at that level nobody wants to the great ones I think don't want to look bad ever lose anything don't ever. want to lose anything you know and and that's the whole point. If somebody on the other side starts, you know, taking the piss or whatever, then the lads, you know, they, then there's a bit of competition that goes with that, and then they're going to feel it too. So, I think that's the level I grew up with at Bayern was, every day you had to be, you know, I never played in a team that didn't have European football midweek. So even if you played Saturday, you had a cool down, or you had training Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Every session meant something. Mm. I never had in a week where I had three days off or four days off. Like, I mean, I've heard coaches. And players say that certain special footballers are allowed to be treated differently. The rules don't apply to them. They're allowed to do X and Y. Eppenberg, I think we've established probably you know, one of them. Um, can, maybe another. Is, is that something... Is it true that, that if, if you're a successful player and an enormous personality and maybe a linchpin at a club, that not all the rules have to apply to you? It's a difficult balance to strike I think because at some point you have to realise that everybody's treated slightly differently mm -hmm. but I think the skill is to treat everybody the same and not make it too obvious that certain people have mm. extra privileges and I think guys like Effenberg and Kahn they earn the right to have those the only issue is when performance doesn't mm. match up to personality so mm -hmm. we had won the league in the Champions League and then we came back and then I think Effenberg got an injury and you know, had some weight issues, and but he still carried the same meaning in the team, mm -hmm. the same personality, and we were struggling for whatever reason. And he kept calling as the captain. He kept calling all these team meetings to say, right, well, come on, we're going to suss, we're going to sort it out, we're going to sort it out. 
And I remember Yenzi Amis one day just said to him, you can sort yourself out mm-hmm. first, by the way, mm-hmm. before you try and start worrying about us. Mm-hmm. You get that, and you earn that privilege, and you earn that right. Mm-hmm. But if it's not there, it comes away real quick. I'm sorry to say it, but it's like the jungle. You watch National it Geographic. It is, 100%. And the old guy's the boss, the boss, the boss. No, you're not. Yeah. On him. It goes quick. And, you know, and it didn't, wasn't long. And then I think he went to Wolfsburg or somewhere. So you get that. And I think you earn that right, which is great. But it needs to be backed up kind of still on the pitch. Mm. You know? Always. Always. And you're given that right from the manager. And I don't mind that. I think it's right that you, the manager, you know, has people that he trusts. But ultimately it has to be backed up on the football pitch. So Bet365 set this through as well. And you've touched on some of the themes, so I'm probably going to have to ask you to be specific and say why. But what do you miss most of everything since you stopped playing? Uh, the camaraderie and the competition. They're the two best things. I was, I was fortunate that I played in teams that won stuff virtually always. And I know everybody strives to win and stuff, and it's a nice thing. And it is nice, but the journey is, is equally as beautiful. You know, the, you know, coming through as a kid and getting into the first team and then having something to show for it at the end of it, you know, achieving all these things that you set out is, um, is amazing. And I think it's, it was so cool that I could become a pro because it was never on the cards for me growing up in Canada. And then to, to reach the level I did and play with and against some of the, the you know, players much better than me, but realizing that you can influence a game of football without being the best player. And it was quite, um, it was really rewarding in that sense that I realized I didn't have to be the most technical player on the pitch to influence the game. And I think that's what a lot of young kids need to learn. It's not all about having the ball at your feet. There's only one ball, there's 22 players. Find a way to be an asset to your coach, to your teammates, that you become irreplaceable. If anybody takes anything from this series of podcasts, it should be that. Attitude, competitiveness, hard work, and the world is your ostrich, oyster even. <laughs> oh, and brilliant chat based on a brilliant career. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for being so generous for so much time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter... And Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.